Hello, lab rats. It's I, Igor. Welcome to Crime Keeper. I am so excited because Queen V and I are going to be going to Crime Con in just a few days. Very psyched. And it was also Peter Cushing's birthday on 526. He would have been 108 years old. In his memory, let's all take two gothic candlesticks, make a cross with them, and a pretend Christopher Lee's Dracula. Rest in peaceful hammer horror forever, Petey. You're my boy, Blue! Queen V and I are also focusing on local murders over the next few weeks. Then we'll give you a report on CrimeCon. Look for updates on the Murder Lab Facebook and Insta pages as we go through the weekend and see who we end up lightly stalking since Billy Jensen isn't going to be there. I thought briefly about Chris Hansen, but he's way too much into catching predators, so he's totally going to peg me as soon as our plane lands. The first murder that we're going to get into, I saw actually on TV, and I can't remember what show it was, and then I read into it, obviously, but it is about the killer priest, the murder of Margaret Ann Paul by Gerald Robinson. It was in Toledo, so I'll be giving you the title and then giving you the city that it is here in Ohio. It happened on Saturday, the April 5th, 1980. 71-year-old sister Margaret Ann Paul was found in the sacristy of the chapel, stabbed 31 times, with nine of the wounds shaped like an inverted cross, covered in an altar cloth, and her clothing was staged to appear as if it was a sexual crime, but she was not found to have been raped. The investigators were initially thinking it was ritual murder, and they later found a book describing how this can be performed in an unlikely location. Father Robinson, I'm just going to call him Robinson because, of course, they, he's a killer, was interviewed but not, not charged. Some point to the fact that Deputy Police Chief Ray Vetter, not like Eddie Vetter's dad, this is V-E-T-T-E-R, ended the interview two weeks after the murder he, as he was a Catholic and he allowed the priest to leave the station. He got upset, said this is ridiculous, this is against what you know we believe, and let him go. Really pissed off the other detectives. He also went to ask for their reports, this uh, deputy police chief, Ray Vetta, and they were never seen again. A cover-up was alleged because of this, and pointed to the fact that there may have been what has been referred to as a coven, anything that has to do with, you know, something in a sacristy that goes down that's negative, coven. So they say it's a coven of priests was alleged to be out there that were involved in Sister Paul's death. There were no new leads. Now this is 80, right, 1980, until 2003, when a woman came forward claiming Robinson abused her as a child and filed a suit against him. It was dismissed due to lack of, to statute of limitations, which should not be a thing. That was the only reason, probably because the church got involved. This caused the investigation to be opened and the police to begin reviewing the case against Robinson. So they got out the initial paperwork, looked over it, and they found a, the letter opener found in his room was sent to forensics, and it was found to fit into a jaw wound of the poor nun's exhumed body. 
they had Exumer, and that's always got to be so difficult. They also were able to find three witnesses that placed Robinson near the chapel prior to the murder, and then that began a trial that started on April 24th of 2006. Talk about the late justice. Robinson was found guilty that May, so just the next month, and was only the second time a priest was convicted of a homicide since the 1900s. Robinson died in prison of a heart attack in July of 2014. I'm sad to say he was buried as a priest in Toledo's Calvary Cemetery. So yes, he did. They covered all this up. They knew he was a bad guy. Anyway, so why did he do it? Well, he never specifically said anything, but it's pointed that he didn't get along with Sister Paul. She was very domineering and rather overbearing, and they clashed. And she had scolded him the previous day for ending the Good Friday service early. He was pissed. He was offended, maybe his ego a little bruised, and so he went to these to these lengths. So they did find that book that I alluded to earlier in his room, the book telling how to perform a ritual sacrifice. So he probably wanted to do that. In that time frame in the 80s, obviously there was a lot of the satanic panic and the memories that people would retrieve memories that people would have. Now I'm not saying this woman was lying because we know from anyone that's watched The Keepers that there totally were things like that going on a long time ago. And hopefully, probably still today, but they were covering it up. And so it just makes you wonder, but I don't know about that aspect of it. Finally, some justice for Sister Paul. The next we're going to go over is a book that I read called The Professor and the Co-Ed, Scandal and Murder at the Ohio State University by Mark Gribben. Now this takes place here in good old Columbus, Ohio in the 20s because you know I like the classic time frame of crime. This was June 14th of 1929. A female student's body was found in a field near a shooting range beaten with a hammer and her throat slit. Her watch displayed her time of death, 9.58, then promptly started working again when her arm was moved, almost like she wanted them to find it. Her underwear and bra had been cut, but not her dress. She was found out to be Theora Hicks after her roommate and a co-worker reported she never had returned from a date the previous night. The investigation into who Theora was brought up to light a double life of the 25-year-old. Although most of us are rather destitute during our college years, she was found to have, and I quote, enough money to buy a top-of-the-line Buick sedan for cash with money left over or to put 50% down on a home. I don't know, back then was that like 50 bucks? I don't know the monies. A 41 caliber Derringer was found in a drawer along with affectionate letters from a Janet... And as we'll come to see, it's, she's not a lesbian, but anyway, it's alluded to. She was described by her father as fearless. She liked to play golf and tennis, but of course, the media focused on the fact of things that were perceived to be more sensational of her lifestyle. Again, it's the 20s. She smoked cigarettes, didn't seem to be interested in men, although her friends described her as never dating the same man twice. So it seems to me like she, she likes to get it. 
which ended up being translated into a man-hater. So I don't really get that. She, she dates a lot, but she hates men. Whatever. And she have, had all that money hidden away in various bank accounts. If we go on to the suspects, Marion Myers. He was a 35-year-old nervous, balding agricultural department grad student at OSU who had once asked Theor to marry him. Now, her response kind of ended things. Uh, she laughed, but it says they remained cordial. Maybe that just means further acquaintances. I don't know, a little bit more. He then walks into the Columbus P Police Station and asks about the body being found at the shooting range and was promptly arrested. He actually had called prior to going over there after a fraternity brother of his told him of Theora's body being found. Now, he had an alibi, but there was a 30 window they found that he couldn't account for when he supposedly went out to deliver a letter, you know, go mail a letter. And I guess it takes like 30 minutes back then. Just email it, dude. Come on. This kept him in the crosshairs of the investigators, which this isn't a pun because his nickname was actually Baldy. Myers got fired after it came out he was intimately familiar with Theora on the grounds of moral turpitude, which sounds like moral turpentine, which kind of probably is the point. But this was not before he was able to point the finger at another OSU man, Dr. Howard Snook. Snook was a 49-year-old married man with a little girl. He was a veterinary science professor, tall with a thick, dark beard, and we got another body here, kids, which is another reason that the Popo focused on our original Baldy, Myers, as the witnesses placed Theora with a the no-here dude. Fun fact, the Snook was the inventor, is the inventor of the Snook hook that is still used in spaying procedures today. Spay and neuter your pets. He was a member of the Scioto Country Club where Theora's body was found. Now, of course, Snooky Snooks denies anything but an acquaintance relationship with her. But they met in 1926, and he admits he loaned her money two years prior. And loaned her a pistol more recently due to her saying she wanted it for protection during her nightly walks. So this obviously points to, hmm, if you give someone money, you probably know more than just, you know, an acquaintance. So cracks are showing. He was then booked, and not only had he cast more suspicion on himself during the interview, in his car, a woman's umbrella, a blood-stained glove, and a hair pin was found along with the remnants of a fire at his home, showing men's pajamas and a man's shirt appearing to have blood on them. Now, old Snooky must have had lots of money, or some kind of a laundry science that we wasn't a thing now, because his wife says... She often burnt his clothes that had animal blood on them from work. Hmm. After reading about the arrest in the dispatch, the Columbus dispatch, that is, Margaret Smalley called police. She advised them that she had rented a room to a Howard Snook, a salt salesman, and his much younger wife in Newark the previous February. Totally should have given his name as Morton because, you know, he was a salt salesman. On June 14th, Snook, had told her he was giving up the room and moving to Washington Courthouse. His wife was to leave behind the two keys that Sunday. Later on, after the murders, when the room was searched, a lady's brown hat and the two keys were found. Smalley was then taken to the mortuary and ID'd Theora as the foe Mrs. Snook. 
evidence. I mentioned in the beginning some of Theora's injuries, but it's important that we understand what she went through to get a multi-layered view of not only her wound and her pain, but the mind frame of the killer. There were 12 lacerations on the back of her head from a hammer, a puncture wound in the right ear, small pieces of bone were removed from the occipital and temporal lobe. The occipital is toward the back and the temporal is on the side, like your temple, leaving a hole in the skull a few inches in diameter. She had a broken right hand with superficial cuts on her back. The determination from all this at the autopsy? She died as a result of the wound to her neck, though the hammer blows had stunned her enough she was alive when her throat was cut. There was a half-digested roast beef sandwich, cannabis indica, and powder form, along with canthanorides. Now, the C. indica apparently offers a different high, more like a sedative effect. And canthanorides, also known as blister beetle extract, never heard of that before, totally got it from this book, is most commonly known as Spanish fly. And that made me think of Beastie Boys, Brass, Monkey, that funky monkey, the girl walks by, she gave me the eye, reached into the locker, pulled out the Spanish fly. Okay. This is just used as an animal husbandry, the, those two uh, cannabisoids, to try to induce animals to mate. To quote our pal slash author Mark Gribben, its, funct- its function is purely physical. It does not make the male animal more amorous. It merely helps him become able to perform sexually. So I'm thinking animal Viagra. So was Theora drugged or did she ingest it willingly? So at this point they're thinking, oh, this poor girl, all she went through, there's no way she had that. She took that willingly. They probably put it in her sandwich, right? Because, you know, nobody would take that. Mm. A knife was recovered from the shooting range along with a keychain with three keys attached. They felt they needed to find out the effects of the sea indica, the cops, gave the same amount that they found in Theora's stomach to a dog while a humane society rep watched. And I guess maybe he or she had some as a little payment on the side, give me some of that. No harm was done to the doggy, which is important. The doggy just had some sleep, sleepiness and a general incoordination. Stimulation that followed very rapidly after almost an hour after being ingested. The effects lasted about 2.5 hours. That sounds about right. Investigators found out from another OSU vet school professor that both cantharides and C. indica are available from their pharmacy. And they further found a jar of cantharides in Snook's office. Now they maintained it had been there a while, but he still had it. The confession. After leaning on Snook heavily, because the investigator was a big guy. I don't know, I made that up. He started to sing like Will Ferrell at the Cantalina wine mixer. Dr. Spay and Neuter Your Pets admits to have started an affair just a few months after they met. It's basically from the autumn of 1926 through June of 1927, they met weekly in hotels or had a sex picnic, meaning that he had a blanket in the back of his car and they'd do it on that. Or maybe you've already figured that out. Then Theora moved to New York for that summer, returning to Columbus in the fall of 27, where she resumed the human husbandry with the snookster. Because, you know, the snooky wanted the nooky. Theora did go out with other dudes, and they knew about her balding Lothario. 
and Snook knew she was doing the chamba-wamba with others. Snook taught her how to shoot various pistols and rifles and ended up giving her that 41 Callinger caliber <laughs> Callinger. Hmm, interesting. Double-barreled Derringer for protection, which she began carrying in her purse. Things appeared to have cooled between them by June of 29, as he felt she was constantly criticizing him, so they fought more. And basically what it comes down to, we've all been there, all known. She expected some things from him besides his man goo, and he wasn't okay with that. Summer was coming up, she didn't have classes to distract her, so he was going to be her focus. And it was becoming more like his marriage than, you know, just getting it. He goes on to say, when they met for the last time, June 13th, he tells her he's going out of town to visit his mother with his wife and daughter, and she loses her shit. This is him saying it, of course. Snook claims she threatens to kill his wife and child, and him too, when he tries to settle her down. She turned to get her purse, and he remembered the Derringer. So he freaks out himself, and when she touches the door handle, he says he automatically grabbed a ball-peen hammer that he kept in the back of his car. He just happened to remember that. He admits striking her in the back of her head with the side of the hammer, causing her to sway, but she continued to try to leave the car with her purse, cursing him, of course. She continued to swear at him as he struck her again on the forehead, which seemed to do little to nothing, according to him. So he's describing like she's like a Terminator, a cursing Terminator. She got out of the vehicle and Snook slid across the seat to follow her. She tried to slam the car door on him, but her hand wasn't out all the way and she ended up catching it in the door. So she got out a handkerchief from her purse as Snook got out of the car. He saw this. Again, she, the whole purse, he's thinking the gun's in there. So he hit her again with a hammer, causing her to lose consciousness. It was at this point, when Snook saw what he did, decided, because he's such a gentleman, that he didn't want her to suffer from the head wounds. So he went ahead and removed his pocket knife and slit her jugular vein and carotid artery. He picked up her purse, thinking the gun was in it, and found nothing. He was wrong. So he had done that for nothing. He was scared of the handkerchief, I guess, and maybe a tampon she had in there, if they had those then. He sped away, throwing her purse into the Scioto River as he headed home. During the trial, however, the story changes and he gives more of a sensationalized version by saying she demanded to give him oral sex. She had to have it in her mouth and was rough during giving the job, grabbed his right hand and got hold of the privates and pulled so hard I simply could not stand it. What do you do when that happens? You try choking the person, right? When that didn't work, he twisted her left arm and then held up her head. I mean, why wouldn't he hold up her head when she had just given him some? So he's holding her head up to keep her from hurting him. So I don't know if like she was biting at him or what. So he wants to build this struggle, show this, paint this scene of struggle. He then says he turns around, grabs something, and hits her with it. Not hard, mind you, causing her to free him. But then, of course, she's still saying that I'm going to kill you. Well, I'd want to say that too. Then onto the part about the purse, her getting out, him thinking she had the gun and hit her four times before he blacked out from testicular pain. 
he totally should have saved this grandiosity as it only took 30 minutes to find him guilty. His appeal was denied 11-22 of 29 and a date of execution was set for February 28th of 1930. He was pronounced dead at 7.09 that day and his body is interred at Greenlawn Cemetery under a false name. Theora's body was returned to her childhood home of Long Island. So that is the story of the professor in the co-ed. If you get the chance, read the book, though, because the, the whole thing about oral sex, that trial scene, it sensationalizes it even more. They go on to talk about almost polyamorous love because um, there were some books being written at the time. So it's very interesting to see how that was reflected and he tried to use it against her, as they do still, making her the victim, the victim shaming was happening. So it was her idea. She was so promiscuous. She just had to have it. So I had to kill her. She wanted my penis so bad. I had to kill her. So let's go on and get our dad jokes out of the way because the stories only get worse from here. This one is for all you crafty bastards. So this killer is on the loose, murdering people with knitting needles. Police think he's following some sort of pattern. A killer breaks into a couple's house and finds them getting ready for bed. He points the gun at the wife and says, what's your name? Elizabeth, says the woman. I could never kill you, says the killer tears in his eyes. My mother's name was Elizabeth. So he points the gun at the husband. And what's your name? Dan, says a startled husband. But my friends call me Elizabeth. I got these next two horrific events from co-workers, one of which is the aunt of the victim. So yes, Queen V has more assistance than just myself. I just suck up to her to get out of the dungeon every once in a while. So now we're going to go on to our final event. I say event because it actually happened. This one is probably the well, most well-known that I think the Roden family massacre. This one happened in South Webster. It's more referenced Pike County. And I've recently listened to a podcast about it. It's called the Piketon Massacre from iHeartRadio. And I listened to it not only because it's local, but it's just unbelievably fascinating because how does this happen? Why does it happen? Let's get into that now. George Billy Wagner III, his wife Angela Wagner, and sons George Wagner IV, and Edward Jake Wagner, they just love their middle names, stand accused of the April 21st, 2016 execution-style murders of eight people causing the largest homicide investigation in Ohio history. They were all shot in the head several times. There were three children left alive, but yet among their dead relatives, that carnage, there was a three-year-old, a six-month-old, and a baby who had just been born four days earlier. Quoting the article, secrets came to light that involved a custody battle a massive marijuana operation, and ultimately, the shocking identity of the accused killers. Here are five facts about the Roden family massacre that I got from Investigation Discovery. Number one, 
all eight victims were members of the same family who lived and died in close quarters. So again, April 22nd, 2016. Bobby Joe Manley shows up at her sister's home to feed the pets, only to find the body of her brother-in-law. The police ended up finding a total of the eight bodies between this home and three others, plus a camper. The bodies were Kenneth Roden, 44, Christopher Roden, his brother, 40, Gary Roden, the cousin of Kenneth and Christopher, Dana Roden, 27, ex-wife of Christopher Sr., mother of Frankie, Hannah, and Christopher Jr., Clarence Frankie Roden, 20, the oldest son of Christopher Sr. and Dana, father of the surviving three-year-old and six-month-old, Hannah Gilly, 20, fiancé of Frankie Roden, mother of the six-month-old, Hannah Roden, 19, daughter of Christopher Sr. and Dana, mother of the surviving four-day-old baby. Christopher Roden Jr. was 16, son of Christopher Sr. and Dana. An autopsy report concluded that the victims had also been beaten prior to being shot, with most of them being executed in their beds. Christopher Roden Sr. sustained nine blasts to the head, torso, and limbs, and he may have been awake when he was being shot. Ohio launched the largest homicide investigation in state history to find the rodents' killers. At that time, Mike DeWine was Ohio Attorney General, and he was quoted as saying at a press conference, These were pre-planned, premeditated, execution-style killings. They thought this thing through. He also noted the potential for multiple killers and mentioned a reward of 25000 for any information leading to to the solution of the case. He also hinted that the murderers possibly knew the victims as they appeared to be familiar with the residences in that rural area. Three, the discovery of the rodents' cannabis operation and possible cockfighting ties raised organized crime theories. April 25th, the police found what they described as a massive marijuana grow operation at three of the four murder sites. They seized over 200 plants, leading them to believe that they had a link potentially to Mexican drug cartel. Among the drugs, caged roosters, breeding chickens, and other equipment that was consistent with the use in cockfighting rings were found. Detectives then explored the possibility that gambling and cockfighting may have been a factor, but ended up not being able to find a connection with, between those and the deaths. Four. Two years after the murders, police arrested the Wagner family for killing the Rodent family. Authorities began to seriously look at a potential suspect in 2017. On June 20th, they announced that they were seeking information on Edward Jake Wagner, which is one of the sons, along with his parents and brother. The family had moved from Ohio to Alaska in the weeks after the killings, but had recently returned. Why? If you, I don't understand why they came back, but anyway, it was November 18th of 2018. They announced the arrest of Edward Jake Wagner, 26, ex-boyfriend of Hannah Roden, the father of the three-year-old who survived the massacre. George Billy Wagner, the third, 48, 
the father of Jake, grandfather of Hannah, Roden's toddler. Angela Wagner, 47, mother of Jake, grandmother of Hannah, Roden's toddler. And George Wagner, the fourth, 27, Jake's older brother. They were all charged with capital murder, as well as charges related to covering up the crime scenes. Now, members of the Wagner's extended family had also been arrested for obstruction of justice and misleading the investigators. In addition, ugh, this grosses me out. Jake Wagner faced a felony charge of unlawful sexual contact with a minor because he fathered that child with Hannah Roden when she was just 15. Mm. Five. A custody dispute is believed to have motivated the brutality. Now, Governor DeWine said, This is just the most bizarre story I've ever seen in being involved in law enforcement. And mentioned that the Wagners exhibited an obsession with controlling who is in charge of Sophia, the daughter of Jake and Hannah Roden. A Cincinnati Inquirer story suggested that there was extreme tension between Jake Wagner and Charlie Gilly, the father of Hannah's second child. No shit. In addition, Charlie Gilly was the brother of murder victim Hannah Gilly. So, a lot of stuff keeping it over there. You know, it's all just... Anyway... As authorities closed in on the Wagners, Jake said the family moved to Alaska to get away from the rumors. (laughs) Well, yeah, why do you come back? He also stated in an email, I have not told Sophia her mommy was killed or murdered. That would be too much for her to handle right now. She knows her mommy is visiting with Jesus and lives in her heart whenever she needs her. Now that alone is so heartbreaking but to know that he was involved? Ugh. Pike County Sheriff Charles Reeder plainly told reporters, members of one family conspired, planned, carried out an alleged cover-up, and allegedly covered up their violent act to wipe out members of another family. They did this quickly, coldly, calmly, and very carefully, but not carefully enough. Now, New York is really helping us out with our own Ohio story here, so the New York Times goes on to tell me some more recent information. Edward Wagner, on 4-22, just last month, pled guilty to eight counts of aggravated murder for fatally shooting his child's mother and seven of her family members and apologized for his role in the killings five years to the date their bodies were found. As a part of the plea deal... That was reached with Pike County. Prosecutors agreed not to pursue the death penalty against Jake, who they recommended should serve eight life sentences without the possibility of parole. Duh. Now, Jake had previously pled not guilty, as the rest of his family continued to do, but he, in exchange for this plea agreement, he agreed that he would testify against his parents and older brother. He confessed to personally causing the deaths of five of the eight victims. At the time of the killings, Hannah Roden had begun to see someone else and was pregnant with that person's child, so we know it was like Charlie Gilly. And according to prosecutors, they said that Jake had forged documents to the court maintaining he would get custody of Sophia in the event of Hannah Roden's death. Hannah Roden had told a friend on Facebook... In December 2015, she would never sign papers sharing custody of Sophia with Jake. The message states, they will have to kill me first. 
and this message was part of a hacked material found in the possession of the Wagner family. Mr. Wagner's plea provides at least some semblance of immediate justice and a glimmer of hope that perhaps all responsible parties will ultimately be held accountable for their respective actions in the near future. The Roden's attorney stated, Prosecutors said that Jake had spent several months planning the murders and had purchased materials for making silencers for guns and a cell phone jammer. Shell casings matching some of those used in the murders were found at the Wagner home, and treadmarks from bloody footprints at the crime scene matched those of several pairs of shoes that the Wagners had recently purchased. The cases of the Wagners' parents and brother are continuing, and like I said, they have all pleaded not guilty. I remember thinking at the time of the murders how crazy it was that there might be a drug cartel here in Ohio. And then it just to find out all this was over a child. Now, don't get me wrong. Obsessive love can drive one to the same actions as greed, which is pretty much the same thing. If you think about it, it, it all just comes down to envy, really, and the person or thing that some people take the life of or lives to, uh, for end up being taken away from them anyway. So it just, I don't get it. That singular focus puts them behind bars. And again, never going to be able to wrap my head around it. Well, Queen V is calling me back to the lab with promises of salty fish head goodness. So I must depart. Good night, dear lab rat. Remember... Everyone must find their truth, and mine is Abby Normal. If you enjoy the experience and experiments of Murder Lab, go to Facebook, Instagram, and MurderLabMedia.com for updates. Share with your friends, those you created in a lab or not, as long as they can subscribe and listen, we'll take it. Murder Lab is available on Google Play and iTunes. The RSS feed is on MurderLabMedia.com for you to plug into your podcast app. We can always use more lab rats. Because, you know, the Snooky wanted the Nookie.